said the sixth part. I always feel like when I get to a... Now, normally most of our series are about four parts. Um, but whenever I do a six-part series, I almost feel like exhausted at the end of this six years. Like, I'm ready to move on. And I don't know why I feel that way. I don't know if you feel that way. But, like, uh, excited to kind of move on. But i, I, I got to be honest. There's been something so unique about this series that I've loved. And it's not just the small groups that we did along with it. But it's the idea that we're pursuing a personal revival in our lives. And we're wanting God to, to awaken something or reawaken something in us as a people, as a family, as a person, as a church, as a community. And so we've looked at incredible movements throughout Christian history and said, whatever it was that God did back then, we believe he could do now. And whatever we believe that he did in them, we believe he can do it in us. I I just believe that if Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever, if he's not changing, then I just need to get with what he's doing. And so I want a revival of faith. And we've talked about that. I want to see a revival of healing. I want to see people miraculously healed on the street, in the church. Don't care. Just want to see people healed for the glory of God. I want to see people um, you know, revived in their in their in their workplace. Like I, I, I want to see you be able to go into your workplace and be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Like I want to see those things. Today, I, I'm so fascinated by this one because there are some of you in here that will know more about this revival than I do because it's a recent revival. Um, I'll let you date yourself if you want to. There was a movement back in the '60s. Um, There was kind of a new generation and a new breed of young people and it had a new wave of influence and there was a bit of a backlash against the old school. And there was a movement called the hippie movement. Mm -hmm. Don't date yourself if you don't want to. You know, I'm just saying if you were a flower child. They, they, had a, they had an ethos of like experimental drugs, experimental music, communal living, you know, it was just kind of like a. Well, y'all seen the video. That's the funny thing. All these other revivals that we talk about, like you, you kind of have to imagine in your mind what they might have looked like. You can tell what these look like. You can go watch footage. You can go get some YouTube going. And, and so so the, this hippie movement takes place and, and like tons of kids are moving in this direction. It's mostly driven by young people. And, and of course, it, it, you know, the one of the hallmarks or highlights or, or peak points of the hippie movement was was Woodstock. Was anybody at Woodstock? Anybody want to? Yeah, look at my hands. Go. So anyway. A little CCR, a little Janis Joplin, you know, a little Jefferson Airplane, Jimi Hendrix. I told my son about Jimi Hendrix yesterday. We're like, like we're listening to the classic rock station and Jimi Hendrix come on. And I say, hey, his name is Jimi Hendrix. He goes, no, dad, is that like your great, great, great grandfather? And I'm like, how old do you think this music is? No, you know, see that no, it's with an X. Um, I-C-K-S. We're not the same. Uh, so anyway, that, that it was this hip butt. Now, how many know that the hippie movement was a counterculture to the norms of their day? It was kind of a, a backlash to what they experienced from their parents generation and they didn't want to have anything to do with it. But everybody say, but. But there was something interesting that took place. It was as if the hippie movement created a counterculture, but then it. It went a direction to where eventually people had a counterculture to the counterculture. That there was a backlash to the backlash. That, that I think the hippie movement in some people's hearts and minds created a void and an emptiness. And in that emptiness, they began to pursue something and they found Jesus. And there's this little movement that started just down the road in San Francisco and just down the way in kind of L.A. And it was it's a little unknown exactly how it started. You have a couple different people telling their stories of how they believe it started. There's this little movement called the Jesus movement. 
Does anybody remember the Jesus movie? Does anybody? Yeah, the G. I was talking to a couple uh, back in small group, and it came up a few weeks ago. The Jesus movement. Either you may experience it, or maybe your parents experienced, or how many you have no idea what I'm talking about? Raise your hands. You have no idea what I'm talking about. All right, Jesus movement. The Jesus movement. People were singing. People were singing Larry Norman. Talking about wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one stands still. Who's singing that? Yeah, Debbie, thank you. Right, somebody have to help me out up here. Wish we'd all been ready. So anyway, they thought, they, 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 but there was this authentic movement where these hippies were coming to Jesus. Like people were going to church barefooted. People had this authentic, the dude, man, just need to love Jesus. And, and it was just this like, this vacuum left from a hippie movement that, that it, cause how many know when you immerse yourself into sex, drugs, rock and roll, it, it, it might be fun for a season, but at the bottom of it, there's just an emptiness. There's just a void because whenever you, you buy in wholeheartedly th- thinking that something will satisfy your soul, anything other than Jesus, you will eventually find an emptiness. You will hit the bottom of the barrel and find out there's nothing really there. And so this, these hippies, these literally like smoking weed, dropping acid, start worshiping Jesus. As a matter of fact, one of the one of the big things that came out of it was Christian music, as you know it today, came out of the Jesus movement. Like people started singing these little praise choruses and singing some, the way we do Christian music um, from the stage today like this. That came out of the Jesus movement. People were, like I said, people were reading the late great planet Earth thinking that Jesus was going to return and they got crazy into evangelism. This is where street evangelism took off. People just handing out tracts, trying to tell people on the street about Jesus. This incredible movement takes place. There was this big, huge conference like like Calvary Chapel was a big deal down in L.A. And then Bill Bright and Campus Crusade for Christ. And there was this big event in Dallas called Explo 72. Was anybody Explo 72? No. okay. Hundreds of thousands of people show up. For a discipleship conference with Christian concerts in the evening and literally hundreds of thousands of people. And I'm telling you about just these people, these young people were coming to Jesus in droves. It was incredible. When you when you look at it, you do see like at the effects of this revival, you do see a sense of like just street evangelism and music and all this stuff. Uh, One of the things I always am interested by whenever there's a movement and revival, though, I always want to know why did it stop or what took place that kind of. Quench the vibe. And, and when, I, when I read the historians that were talking about the Jesus movement, they would say that the Jesus movement didn't stop because of any necessarily one reason. He said people just got older. When you have a movement of young people, young people don't stay young forever. They just got a little bit older. And they, the, the, he made it a point, and a point that I felt like I wanted to stick on today. And it was the point that, that these people had a revival, an authentic a relationship with Jesus, a revival of evangelism, a revival of worship and music. But what it did was is it brought them back to biblical values. And in doing so, these young people just got older. And when you get older, what do you got to go get? A job, a J-O-B. When you get older, what do you get? You, you get, you get married and you start having kids. And they, as they followed biblical traditions, one of the ripple effects of this movement called the Jesus movement was a movement back towards family values of the biblical kind. That, that although that wasn't maybe the predominant thing going on, that was the end result. That because of all these people, because think about it, when you move towards a lifestyle of free sex, free drugs, communal living, and just, how many know that's not the family mold? As, so, so like, all of a sudden, the counterculture to the counterculture brought, counter, counterculture, 
culture. When you say counterculture too many times, it gets stuck in your mouth. And so, but it brought people back to family. And the ripple effect, not in the moment, but the ripple effect is that there was a revival of the biblical model of family. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about is having a revival of family. Can we pray this morning before we go any further? Father, we pray that you would speak to us today, God. We pray that we would be open. Anything's on the table, God. You say what you want to say. Let your scripture speak, God. Let me rearrange my life to match your world, not the opposite. God, let me surrender. Let me submit. Let me repent. Let me turn towards you. God, teach me. Help me. Let me know you. God, I pray that you would speak to me, Lord. That is, that is our prayer today in Jesus' name. We all said, amen, amen. So, hey, so the question begins, this is like, Okay, we're talking about family, and the idea is, is that there was a revival of family, and then we talk about the notion of a biblical family, but where, where does that even come from? Have you ever thought about, like, like what, is, what is the family? Because if you read the Bible, you go back to the beginning, and you discover that God creates the earth, creates the world, in it and he places mankind, and he starts with this guy named Adam. Everybody say Adam. He's a dude. And so... Adam is all alone. He ain't got nothing but a bunch of animals. God looks at him and says, something not right about you. Um, we still got to work on you a little bit. I created you perfectly, but I created you perfectly in need of someone else. And so then God said, I'm going to create someone that you can connect with. And so he put Adam into the deep sleep, took out a rib and made a what? A woman, a man with a womb, a woman. And so all of a sudden you have man and woman. And then God tells them to do something. The very first thing that God tells man and woman to do was what? Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, so you figure out what that means. And so what, what you do is you have a man, you have a woman, you get fruitful with it. And then out of that come children. And so the first family has Cain. They have Abel. How many know that didn't turn out too good? So then they make some more kids. They have Seth. They have, and, then, and then all of a sudden the family dynamic is created. And he says these words, he goes, for this reason, a man shall leave his father, and his mother, he shall cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's the marriage dynamic. And then in that marriage dynamic, you have kids and bring up kids in that. And that is the origin of family all the way back to Genesis. Now, when you move forward in Genesis, it, it gets amazing because there's another family model because you have this guy named Abraham. Abraham is a guy that God uniquely plucks and says, I need to start a nation, but I don't want to pick a nation too dysfunctional. I'm going to start with a family. So he has Abraham and he has Sarah. Don't even have kids yet. And says, y'all are going to have kids and through your kids, I'm going to do something incredible through the notion of family. So then they have kid, Isaac, and then they got a kid, Jacob, and then them kids got kids and kids multiply. This is the, and this is why in the Bible, when the Israelites would talk about their God, especially in the early, the early parts of their history, they would say that we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are the people. Of Why? Because God was considered a God over their family. So before God ever had a nation, what did he have? Family. Before God did anything, he started with the dude and said, you need a family. You need to have a wife and you need to be fruitful and multiply. Now, what's funny is, is that, that later on in scripture, it does make an exception. It says that some people 
are good with never being married. Jesus references this and says there's uh, the, the marriages for most people. There's a, there's a small exception and they shouldn't be married, but that is the minority, not the majority. And then Paul says the same thing. And he says, the reason why is, is he goes, the really only reason you need to be single is so that you can dedicate more of your life to serving the Lord. But outside of that, by and large, God's blueprint, God's design was family. Even before he started the church, he started with a family. Everything goes back to the family. So then you ask yourself, okay, well, well, this is where the family came from. What should the family exactly look like then? And in the book of Ephesians, Paul gives the longest list of scriptures all crunched together in one spot about what family should look like. Are you ready? That's what we're going to build off of today. Ephesians chapter 5, it says this. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Husbands love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 31. For this reason, Jesus quotes the scripture from Genesis and Paul quotes the scripture from Genesis. He goes, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Each one of you must also or must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband children obey your parents in the lord for this is right honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth that is the promise fathers don't exasperate your children but instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the lord did you guys follow me on that one yeah, this is Paul saying, let me help you guys think about family God's way, a biblical blueprint for what family should look like, because let's be honest, I believe the family is under attack in America. Now, it's subtle, it's hidden, it's not obvious, it's not like somebody's going out there and saying, down with the family, let them all burn, nobody's doing that. They're subtle. They're strategic. Uh, the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we, we wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. That there's something unique probably in the unseen realm that is an attack against families. And you can see it because the, the way that America was built was strongly built on families. And where it's headed right now is headed in a way against families. If, if, let, let, me, let me put out a stat to you. Just since 2000, we've seen these trends move. And right now we are at our lowest point of family dynamic in American history, that literally less than 25 percent of homes in America are made up of a husband, a wife and a kid. Now, that's where it all started, though, right? Now, I'm not saying you have to have kids or you're a terrible person or you have to get married. Don't don't, don't misread. Don't misunderstand. We're just talking about the original design that God gave us. There's an exception every once in a while. Or obviously, there's certain times where a couple is maybe not able to conceive and have a child. We're not talking about the exceptions. We're talking about the general pattern. But but just back in 1960, when you talk about the Jesus movement, when you go that that far, 45 percent of homes. were made up of a husband, a wife. So we're literally just trending in the wrong direction. And when you look at the factors that re, you kind of you kind of come to the conclusion of the factors that are causing this to take place, you got a bunch of things. Because anytime you want something to tip and to trend in a certain direction, it's never one thing. Usually you got to throw a bunch of things at it. So what you start throwing at it is this, is you end up throwing premarital sex and having kids outside of wedlock. And the numbers drive down. 
You throw in the increased divorce rates over the last 40 years. You throw in that increase of divorce rates, all of a sudden that number goes down. We got something interesting going on, too, where now people are having when they do have kids, they have them later in life. The, the average age that you used to have kids was back in your early 20s. Now it's, it's kind of much later on in life and much in your later 20s now. And so we're basically saying, well, I need to do this, this and this, and I'll put kids off until later in life. And so that's been Pushback. Not only that, we, we've got less kids per family now. If you look at the number of kids in our homes, you know, obviously we're not an agricultural society anymore. So it's not like you need 20 kids to work the farm. But, you know, it, it, the Bible does say replenish the earth and multiply it, which means you need more than just one kid. I mean, two parents plus one kid. That's not that's not multiply. That's subtract. If you got two kids plus two kids, that's just addition. So you know what you need? You need at least three kids. That's what I'm trying to say. You need to have a bunch of babies. Anyway, um, multiply the earth. And, and, and I'm not saying everybody needs to have five kids. That would be insane. But when you see a trend towards a overall decrease in the number of kids that people have, it begins to affect the culture. It begins to affect society. And so, again, you throw in and there's probably even more factors. I don't want to take all day talking about that. But what we see is, is this kind of subtle attack against the family. And some people like, you know, in China, they have this epidemic where they thought they had too many kids. So they put the they put the birthright on lockdown and said, you can't have but one kids. And then because of this, uh, you, you have this massive abortion of all female children. Because they wanted a male to carry on the name and the legacy and to be able to work and provide to take care of the parents in their old age. And so, so the reality is, is that we have this idea that maybe the earth is getting too populated. Can I tell you, that's, that's ridiculous. If you took all of the people on planet earth, you could huddle them up all into California. The rest of the world would be empty. I mean, like there's plenty of room. We're okay. Are you hearing me? It's not an overload of population. We're okay. What I want to see you do, though, is I want to see you and I have a revival to where we begin to look and feel about families differently than the way that our culture does. Because as a Christ follower, I don't want you blending in and looking like everybody else. I want you to be a Jesus follower. I want you to surrender to the words of God. I want you to say God's way is the best way. And if, you, if you're not down with that, that's okay. But I'm going to do it the Lord's way. And this is God's blueprint. When you see Paul begin to dissect Ephesians chapter 5, here's what you find. Is it a family? At the head of it. Is a sacrificial man. There's a dude in there. And when Paul begins to describe this kind of a husband, when I, and he gives, I'm going to give you the family. I'm going to give you God's way for family. It always is going to have at the head of a sacrificial man. When you look at the words that Paul said, he said this. He said, husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was a sacrificial leader. He sacrificed his life for the church. And that's the type of husband that, that Paul is prescribing here. That, that, that a great family, that God's blueprint for family, starts with a sacrificial man. Meaning it starts with a guy who says, wife, kids, family, your deal is bigger than my deal. That I'm willing to give up my life. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to surrender. I'm willing to put you first. I'm willing to put my needs second to make sure that you have that. I'm willing to give you everything. Sacrificial. Husband. Now, there's a kickback in here because this all sounds good. But when I meet with you individually, I get a different I get a different kickback. Because I get like, but do you know who I'm married to? I get like, but do you know my wife? My wife is crazy. All right, let me help you out. The church is crazy. Right. The church is crazy. 
You, I love church stories. I don't know if you know this or not, but like when I meet new people and they come to New Beginnings and I'm like, oh, where are you coming? Yeah. And, then, and then this is what they'll do. I'll say, what church do you used to go to? And they'll say me that I'm in church. I'm like, well, what made you leave? Um, it's kind of funky. It got kind of weird. Something bad went down. I'm like, dude, tell me the story. I love funky church stories. Like, I love them. I think they're great. Um, but, but the church is full of funkiness. Can I get an amen? Do you know why? Because it's full of people. I'm your pastor. What do you expect? I ain't perfect. The church is full of people. Therefore, the church, in essence, is full of sinners just trying to serve Jesus as best they can. Does that make sense? But like, but even throughout history, I mean, we were talking about this last You had these periods called the Dark Ages where people, you know, churches wouldn't let people read the Bible. What in the world? You have these weird moments where like politics and, and power intermingled and took over the influence of the church. And all of a sudden you got weird things like the Crusades and they're killing people there. And you got the Inquisition. They got, you know, like all this weird. And you know what Jesus does the entire time? Loves the church. Doesn't justify the church, doesn't say the church is good or right. He judges the church many times, but he only judges it because he loves it. So like your wife being crazy don't really qualify because church is crazy and Jesus still loves the church and you're crazy and Jesus still loves you. So the fact that your wife is crazy is irrelevant that Jesus doesn't love, doesn't love the church because of her performance. Jesus loves the church because of her position. Let me say that again. Jesus doesn't love the church because of our performance. He loves the church because of our position. You should love your wife then, not because of her performance, but because of her position. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm clap, clap, clap myself. I know they don't make no sense. I know. Guys, I know. I know. I know. I, I'm married to one. I know they don't make no sense. But they don't make no sense to us. They make perfect sense to them. That's why when they talk to each other, it just, they, I don't want to talk about it. Why do you need 10 pillows on top of a bed? Like that don't make no sense. Like you don't, you don't need, why do you need six different bottles of shampoo in the shower? Like, like there's shampoo and then there's conditioner. And most of you guys don't use that anyway. So like, like, why do you need, why do you need all these things? Why do you need everything to be just so, why, why is it that some of the confusion and the weird stuff, you know, but here's what I want you to be. I want you to be sacrificial. I want you to look at the pillows and be like, baby, that's what you want. What my baby wants, my baby gets. You want 20 pillows. I'll get you 20 pillows. Unless it's sinful, immoral, or just out of bounds, crazy, unreasonable, you sacrifice. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I went and got a dog. I'm a dog owner now. I have this little tiny puppy like that big It is so it, it's, it's a puppy. And so now let me, let me, let me explain how this works. Guys, I'm gonna teach you a lesson here. This is how you roll. So we show up to the place where you adopt puppies and you go in, you begin to look at all the puppies and you make a list of all the puppies that you want. And so my wife goes in and she finds puppies um, that are named like cinnamon and, and, and buttercup and, and sugar pea and all these little. And then like I find a dog. That looks, I mean, he's a beast. He looks like a thug. He looks like if you crossed him, you know what I'm saying? He's little because he's a puppy, but he's. I was going to name him Jack Bauer. Or Commando or Terminator or something cool. I came home with a dog named Cranberry, y'all. I wasn't no commando. It was a little furry, foofy lap dog. I didn't get Jack Bauer. 
what my baby wants, my baby gets. It's all about you, baby. You don't have to have your way. You don't have to get everything in life. That you, you, the remote control is not always yours. You should be sacrificial. And what the ultimate husband does, the role of the husband is this, and I wrote it down because I want to talk about it. He says, but the role of the husband is to provide and to protect spiritually, physically, and emotionally. Like this is where you come in. I'm a sacrificial husband. I'm, the, I'm a sacrificial head of my own. I'm a sacrificial leader. And my role is to provide and protect in every arena. Well, let's talk spiritually. Spiritually, you should be the head of your home. And that doesn't mean you, head of your home doesn't mean you do everything. It doesn't mean you're a dictator. It doesn't mean you control everything. It means you give direction. You're willing to lead the way if necessary. You always give direction and you're willing to lead if necessary. Does that make sense? So like spiritually speaking, I want you to be the head of your home. Like your wife should not have to kick you and plead with you to get you to come to church. You should lead the way. As a matter of fact, you would see studies that will shock you. When it studies the family dynamic and whether or not the kids go to church or not is so directly related to not if mom comes to church, but if dad comes to church. That when the father comes to church, the odds of the entire family coming together increase by 100%. I mean, it is off the chart crazy. Because I know, I remember being a little kid. That was me. Because when dad didn't go to church, I'm like, why do I go to church? Dad don't go. Husbands, lead the way spiritually. Pray for your wife. Remember all the things she's crazy about? Just pray for her. Pray for her. Okay, lead. Go to church. Pray for her. Be willing to pick up a Bible. Be, be willing to lead things in your home in a spiritual way. Be, be a provider physically. The Bible says something really shocking. It says that if a man is unwilling to work or won't work, he shouldn't eat. And the Bible goes on to say after that, that a man who is unwilling to provide for his family is worse than an infidel. Like, so you love Jesus, won't provide for your home. Paul's like, that's worse than just not even believing at all. I didn't say that. I would never be that mean. Paul said that. So you can take that up with him. Physically provide for your family. Emotionally. Like emotionally provide. Because this is where dudes check out. Dudes are like, well, hey, hey, honey, how was your day? Sorry. No, no, no. They want to know. They want you to talk. They want you to use a bunch of words. They want you to describe how you felt when it happened. That's how they want it. And so like you're going to have to move to Now, you'll never be Oprah. You'll never be cry about stuff. You'll never be super duper open and sensitive. And, but you need to move in that direction where you're able to provide and meet her needs emotionally. And this is what the husband does. This is the biblical model is that they are provider and protector. They are the sacrificial head of their home. Everybody say, all right. The second thing that Paul begins to describe is not just a sacrificial husband, but an honoring wife. He starts out by saying that, that wives, you need to submit to your husbands. But it goes on to say, and, and I think this is him describing what that should really look like, is that, is that the wife, in verse 33, must respect or honor her husband. It's an honoring wife. There's something to this. There's something, I know there's a kickback sometimes, ladies, because you have the same exact reason that we have. Because you look and you're like, do you know my husband? Do you know what he does? Men are weird. They are. They're, they do weird things. They'll pass gas and then like smell it and be like, hey, dude, did you hear that? And, and then they, they have this thing where they smell their clothes before they put them on to see if they still smell good or smell bad or not. I do this. I still do this. I caught myself just a couple days ago and I'm like, oh, that's true. And I'm like, oh, I did it again. And so. We just do weird things. We, we, we do weird things with our life and with our hobby and with our mannerisms and with our sounds and our smells. And 
we're sometimes crude. And the only reason we're, we're, we're the only reason the planet exists is because women kept us together. Let's be honest. That's the only reason. So I understand, ladies, that many times you have a difficult time. But here's the funny thing is that God never gives any caveats to this idea called honor. He doesn't say, well, honor them if they're honorable. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say honor them if they're doing a really good job. But when you, because here, here's the deal. Every guy deserves the what for. You know, what I'm every guy deserves getting the business. Every guy deserves the nagging, the complaint. Every guy deserves that. Can I get amen? Here, here's the problem, though. I'm not saying you can't do that, ladies. I'm saying it won't work. I'm saying not only will it won't work, but you'll actually end up with a more negative outcome than what you started with. I wrote this down because I want to mess it up. An atmosphere of dishonor will either produce resentment, stonewalling, or cowardice, all of which will make you even more disappointed and unsatisfied. When a man feels dishonored, he shuts down. Either he's going to resent you and be begrudging under his, and give you stank eye, he can mean mug you. Under his breath, he will say things about you. When you leave the room, he will have words for you. Or he'll stonewall. Like he'll just shut down emotionally. Or, or in cowardice, he will just bow to your pressure, to your manipulation, to your demand, nagging, whatever it is. Either way, you're in it with a husband that you don't want. Because you don't want a husband who's a coward. You don't want a husband who's shut down. And you don't want a husband who resents you. So your best bet... When we be weird and we be doing all of our dumb things and we're in our funk and we've we've fallen and we've mistaken. Let me do this. I wrote down. I I listened to an article or not an article. I listened to an interview of of a couple who'd been married for 30 years. And as I was listening to their interview, she said something that was so shocking to me, but I felt was so true. I want to read it for you. This this couple had been married for 30 years. Um, wonderful, wonderful couple. And when they were asked, how did you make it work? How is your marriage so great? Because they would talk about their marriage. And this is, this is what she would say. She was sitting right next to him doing the interview. And she said, well, in, in our early years, he was awful. He was the worst. This is what she said. He didn't know how to manage money. He never spent any time at home. We were always broke. He worked all the time. He was insensitive to my needs. He never prayed or led, prayed or led the family spiritually. And I'm shocked because she's saying this like right next to him. Like most would be like, hey, I'm right here. I'm in the room like you are talking about me in front of me. I'm right here, woman. And you would think this must be the dude that's resentful or cowardice or, you know, whatever it is. Stonewalling. But listen, listen to what she says. So she continues. And she goes, when my husband and I began to have all of our trouble early in our marriage, I knew I had a choice to make. I could nag him and try to change him or I could even leave him. But in my heart, I knew none of those things were right. So finally, I decided to let him fail and let God correct him as I honored and loved him. After a period of time of praying for him and letting him fail, I saw God begin to change my husband right before my eyes. Today, I have a righteous husband who loves me and meets my needs. Okay, let me tell you, let me tell you why that struck home for me. That's my story. That, if you will go talk to my wife... And whenever we talk to couples, especially when we talk to young couples, the, usually the wife is talking about the immature things that the young husband is doing or not doing. And, and, and the, my wife basically does the same thing. Like when, when, when I read this, this interview or saw this interview, I was like, that's me. That's my life. Because my wife is, is just a few years older than me. And when we got married, she was much more mature than I was and, and much more ready for a relationship. And so I believe that she married me on potential. Um, 
more than substance. And, and so, but she will tell all these young couples, she's like, oh, no, no, in the beginning, Todd was awful. Todd was aloof. Todd was completely unaware of my emotional needs. Todd was not, Todd was this, 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 and, and, and I was okay with her saying it because I knew. Now, let me tell you what, what my wife did. My wife loved me. She believed in me and she prayed for me. And she just kept doing those three things. She loved me. She believed me in me and she prayed for me. And that is how I begin to take shape and begin to develop as a young husband. I'm telling you, you would, you would think my needs aren't getting... Now, I'm not saying you can never just like tell them your feelings. What I'm saying is this, is that wives, when it comes to your husbands, whether they're honorable or not, I want you to do this not for him, but for the Lord. Because the Bible doesn't even say it to do it for him. The Bible says do it for the Lord. Does that make sense? And I'm not saying that you need to be a doormat. I'm not saying that you should be walked on or let him get away with whatever. Here's what I'm saying. And I, I wrote down a few things that I want you to think about. Is that really when, when, you, when you need to address and you need to correct, number one is this. I want you to speak with kindness and respect. I want you to speak with kindness and respect. Men have a language of respect. They have huge egos. We need to be, you know, puffed up and helped out and loved a good bit. We need it. So when you begin to talk down to us, we're going to react really, really negatively. That's that culture and atmosphere of dishonor that comes from beating a guy up. Do so. Treat him the way that you want to be treated. Many times we treat our spouse, and this goes both ways. Many times we treat our spouse worse than we treat our friends. Okay, that's most of us. Some of us treat our spouse worse than we treat our enemies. Like you have people you don't even like, but you'll be nice and cordial to them in public. You treat them better than you treat your spouse sometimes. Treat them the way that you want to be treated. Number three, let him fail and pray for him. I'm telling you what, there's something about that where a man needs to experience that. He needs to fall down and figure out how to pick himself up with God's help and move forward and learn and grow. And that doesn't happen by being kind of like beaten up and attacked verbally. It happens when that man learns how to trust in God for himself and get up, shake himself off and keep on going. Number four, congratulate him on every success, major or minor. Like my wife is great at this. My wife like, mm, babe, that grass looks so good. You cut that grass so good. Now, I don't even need that, but I might like it. Like it's cutting the grass. Okay, it's not rocket science. You just, you just, you just pushing a line. That's really all it is. And then you turn around and you just go down the next line. That's real easy. But guess what? My wife knows how to just kind of congratulate or bless or encourage major or minor. She does a good job at it. Baby, you should teach this part of the, of the sermon. Um, and, and lastly is this. Speak to him and over him the character traits you desire. Speak to him and over him the character traits that you desire. Begin to say those things speak life begin to claim those things over your husband if your husband struggles in an area begin to speak and to claim and to to him even those words and i'm telling you in doing so you will create a culture of honor and what you'll do is when you create that culture of honor and you step back you will see god do wonders you will see god do amazing things in that man's life and this is where ladies i know it's hard but i want you just to trust the scriptures and trust the lord on this and honor him regardless of where he's at in life can i get an amen that was Okay. The last part of this biblical blueprint is we have an honoring, uh, we have an honoring wife, we have a sacrificial husband, we have obedient children. Like, like if you go read all the scriptures that talk about kids, there's only like two or three of them in terms of like what a kid should do. And you know what they all say? Obey your parents. Honor your parents. But the dynamic is this, is, is, is this ain't kids church. 
We don't have kids in here. Who are we talking to right now? The parents. And this is why as parents, we need to remember this, is that every child needs a steady diet of training and discipline covered in love. Every child needs a steady and consistent diet of training and discipline covered in love. It is the funniest thing in the world when I watch parents. I love going to the playground and watching how parents deal with their kids. We get a kick out of this stuff. Um, and it's hard, too. And I, I've caught myself and I find myself doing it, too. But it's the funniest thing in the world when you see that, that mom who's overwhelmed by that little toddler. And she's like, Jimmy, Jimmy, you, get, Jimmy, you put that knife down. Jimmy, I'm going to count to three. And she's like, one. Two, two and a half, two and three quarter, you know, I'm going to call your father. And she goes through this. She got like a list red. I'm saying red. Don't make me get to, but you got color. There's color systems. There's number system. There's, there's all these like. It's not what the Bible describes or prescribes. Steady diet. Listen to this. Listen to this. Proverbs 19 verse 18. Discipline your son. For in that there is hope. And do not be a willing party to his death. The Bible literally says that when we fail to discipline and train our kids, that we are being a willing party to their demise. It is the, it is the responsibility of the parent to train their children. And let me, let me help you. I'm going to give you quick two thoughts, so we'll keep moving. Is that training is intentional. It is not accidental. Training is intentional. It is not accidental. You don't accidentally stumble into training your kids. You may on a few points, but in the big picture, you will miss a lot of things. Training is intentional. This is where we sit down and we make a plan. We get thoughtful. We read, study, research, do all of our homework, and then we sit down together as husband and wife and say, what's our plan? How are we going to move forward together in training our children? And then discipline. How many know discipline? That's just hard work. It gets tired. Like, you get tired trying to discipline your kids all the time. It's tough. I'm telling you, stay with it. Stick with it. This is the command given to parents and children. And then lastly, what you'll see is this, is that you have a sacrificial husband, an honoring wife, obedient children. But they're all here, though. They're all in pursuit of a sovereign God. You, if you take this out, you might end up with a feel-good family. Maybe. Listen to what Deuteronomy says. I want you to listen to these words. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Bible says these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me, Moses, to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And that you, your children, and their children after them may what? Fear the Lord. He goes, the reason why we established the family and the reason why I gave you the words of God and the way that I did the re- is so that you may know and love and fear the Lord. That's it. If we, if we take this away, this fear the Lord part, everything else is going to begin to fall apart. That's where it all begins. And, and I'm going to give you just a nugget of thought here. When the Bible talks about the way that you parent, please get this. If you miss everything else on parenting, please get this. He said the key to parenting is don't parent thinking about your kids. Parent thinking about your grandkids. Now you can chew on that one for a minute. When you parent, don't parent thinking about your kids. Don't do that. Parent thinking about your kids' kids. Because when you do that, all of a sudden you have to plan. You have to be inside. You have to take steps. You have to, you have to think through this thing. You have to pray over this thing. You have to be more intentional. Because I'm not just trying to think, how do I make sure Peyton knows the Lord? I'm trying to make sure, how can I raise Peyton in such a way that he will make sure that his children know the Lord? That's different, ain't it? Because that's how biblical parenting works. You don't think about your kids. Think about your kids' kids. Listen to what he says here in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so love the Lord your God, you. 
with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. They took Some of these people took this literally. Like an Orthodox Jew has a thing that they tie as a little box right here. What's in the box? Bible verses. They took this literal. I'm not saying you need to take it literal. I'm just telling you they said this, this is legit. And they literally, if you go to an Orthodox Jewish home, over their door to the entry of their home, you know what you find? Scripture. They took this thing literally. The idea is this, is that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and then you pass that, you've got something to pass on now. But the idea is that family is not meant to be family just for the sake of family, but that family is meant to be a unique dynamic underneath the covering, the protection, the blessing of a sovereign God. So that not just our kids, but our kids' kids may know and fear the Lord. And so when we live a life like that, I'm telling you, all of a sudden we have a revival in our family. Now, here's what I know about you. Most of you do not come from this kind of home. Can I get an amen? Yeah, most of us don't come from that home. Even if we had mom, dad in, it didn't look like that. I mean, it didn't look like sacrificial honoring. You know, it, did, it didn't look that good. It wasn't, I didn't grow up in the Cleaver home. So, so we are already at a disadvantage kind of, aren't we? I want to tell you there's hope today. I, I want to encourage you. Like, I don't, I, some of you during this message feel a sense of guilt because you think about what you didn't do well or what you might have not done right. I want, you to, I want you to shake that off. There is no condemnation in this place. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free in Jesus' name. He has paid the debt for your sin. Here's what I want you to do, though. I want you to know that no matter what your situation is, if it does not match this blueprint and this model for family, I want you to know a couple of things. Number one is this is God always makes up the difference. Hey, I didn't grow up in that home, and I'm here. My wife didn't grow up in that home. She's here. Most of the people I know that are serving God today, they didn't grow up in that home. It doesn't mean that if you don't grow in that home, you got no chance. It just means that you need God to make up the difference. And that's why we are a people of faith. We believe God makes up the difference. Even in my, my being a dad, I'm not the perfect dad in the world. I make blunders. I need God to make up the difference. I'm not the perfect husband. A lot of the time. Probably most of the time. Sometimes I am. Okay, but I need God to make up the difference. I want you to know that he can do that because he's done it in my life. He's done it in my wife's. I know too many people. He's, he can do it in yours. Can I get an amen? Second priest of encouragement I want to give you is this. And sometimes you look at your family tree. And it's full of nuts and squirrels. It's a weird family tree like this. You know, like no matter what your family tree, no matter where it is that you came from, no matter what it is that you're dynamic, I want you to know this. Is that you can be a tipping point. You can be a starter. You can be... Um, the different, you can be the one, here's what I want you to picture. You can be the one that in three and four generations from now, people will look back and say, I'll tell you why my family's a Christian family. Apparently it was my great grandmother. It was my grandmother. It was my grandfather. It was my whoever. And they knew the Lord and the, the family before that was crazy. But bless God, they had an experience with Jesus. They surrendered their lives to Jesus. They started going to church and they kind of just passed on a Christian heritage and a Christian legacy for generations. Don't you want that to be your story? You ever hear these stories? They almost make me mad a little bit. I'll hear a preacher and be like, I'm a third generation preacher. Like, you don't know my family. Um, how cool would it be to say, you know what? 
I'm here today because of my grandparents or because of my parents or because of whatever. I don't care what your family looks like today. It doesn't really matter. All I know is, is all it does is take for God to change and radically change the heart of one person to infect one family and begin a brand new legacy and heritage. How many of you want that for your family going forward? Amen. Let's pray today. God, we need a revival of family. God, we need to get back to biblical manhood. We're not cowards. We take responsibility. We sacrifice. We do the hard things. We have high character. God, help us to get back to biblical manhood. God, I pray for all the ladies in here. God, help them make a return to biblical woman. God, let them have beauty that is unseen, that comes from the inside of them. God, let them have purity of heart. Lord God, let them have an atmosphere of honor in their home, Lord God, so that their husband can thrive. I pray, Lord God, for obedient children. Lord God, I pray that as parents, you would show us how do we train, how do we discipline. God, give me wisdom. Point me in the right direction. Give me good mentors. God, help me, help me to raise and train and discipline my children as you would have me do so. But God, all, all, all underneath your covering, underneath your protection, in pursuit of you. God, let that be us. God, let us be the ones that start a new heritage, a new legacy. God, let it be us, God, who just transform the direction of our family tree. That for generations to come, God, parents, kids, grandkids, grandkids, great-grandchildren, God, that they may know the Lord. What an incredible testimony that will be. And so, God, we pray, we ask, God, let there be a revival in our families today, God. That is our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Can we give the Lord a big hand clap this morning?